I think my goal is for the regular reader, the person who doesn't know anything about this issue, or the person who does, to look at these things and get inspired and want to act in a different way, or just want to act. My name is Alpha Bergeson, and I'm the founder of HFX Collective. Welcome to our collective voice. I interview social shifters, change makers, people within community who want to be heard, people in community who have something to say, and people that are making a difference. Thank you for listening to our collective voice. On this episode, I interview Dr. Ingrid Waldron, a professor at Dalhousie University. She joins me to discuss her latest book and her latest documentary with Ellen Page titled, There's Something in the Water. Dr. Ingrid Waldron shares with us her life's work studying and teaching environmental racism and sharing with us ways in which the regular citizen can make a positive impact in their community. So for the people who don't know who you are, um, tell us who you are, what you do, and where you do it. Uh, my name is Ingrid Waldron. I'm an associate professor in the School of Nursing in the Faculty of Health at Dalhousie. Uh, I was born in Montreal uh, to Trinidadian parents. And uh, I came to Halifax in 2008 uh, to teach at Dalhousie, specifically on uh, marginalized communities or vulnerable communities, uh, their social, political, economic, and health experiences. Um, so there's a term in health that's called the social determinants of health, or I like to say the structural determinants of health. And it's about how social, political, economic, environmental factors impact people's health and well-being. So my work is focused specifically on that. So it could be about environmental racism. It could be about housing. It could be about income insecurity and poverty. It could be about... Um, uh, anything that has to do with marginalized peoples and the experiences that they're having on the ground in the real world and how that impacts them, impacts their health, uh, oftentimes outside of the health system. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also interested in looking at how they face barriers to accessing healthcare as well. That's what our community smells like. Sometimes you go into our community buildings and our homes and you feel that, like it just sticks to the walls. These are the aerators. They're supposedly giving oxygen to the water, which is fairly sad, but uh, back in the day when they said that it would have no impact, this is what we're left with. Uh, all this is uh, blown over into our community. So not only are we suffering knowing that, you know, this exists to our water, and look at our air as well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. Do you worry about your own health? It's so funny that you mentioned that because uh, just knowing, you know, where I came from and, you know, the family that's gone before me and I've, I've never expected to live long. I'm, I'll be 41, you know, next week. And knowing that, you know, everybody, you know, passed away so young. Um, I, I had always felt that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to get a chance to grow old. 
And sometimes I think that way. Recently, you were a producer in a film called There's Something in the Water. Where did that come from? I know you've written a book. Can you tell us more about the book and uh, yeah. why it was written, when it was written, and what, mm -hmm. what we'll find inside that book? Uh, the book is based on my environmental noxiousness, racial inequities, and community health project. I've been doing that since uh, 2012. And in 2015, uh, the publisher, um, Fernwood, I uh, met with the, the owner of Fernwood, the founder of Fernwood, in 2015, and uh, he asked me to write the book. It wasn't something I was thinking of doing. Hmm. Um, I was thinking of writing a book somewhere down the line, but not that quickly. Right. And he said, I want you to write a book on your project, and I want you to focus it on both Indigenous and Black communities, and I want a historical analysis. And I said, yeah, that sounds interesting. So the book, uh, I started slowly writing the book, I would say in 2016, based on the project, and based on all the things that have happened throughout this project and the journey that I've taken. Uh, but it also, you know, it, it includes a lot of facts and statistics as well. Um, and the book was released in, uh, in February of 2018. And I did all the book launches, but then in around October, I went onto my Twitter page and I noticed that uh, there was a lot of activity on one of my Twitter pages. And I traced it back up to Ellen Page, the actress. Mm -hmm. Didn't know initially when I first saw her name following me that it was her. Didn't think much of it. Went about my business and came back a three, three weeks later. I noticed it was Ellen Page, the actress. I thanked her for promoting my book. Uh, then a friend of hers arranged for me to have a, to, to call, to have a three-way kind of conversation um, on the phone in, I would say it's Christmas time last year. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, I just want to use my platform. I want to use my celebrity to kind of leverage some of these issues and also support your work and support the people who have been impacted by environmental racism. Um, it took me a while to think about how she could help. I thought her Twitter following is so huge that Twitter is so powerful mm -hmm. that she could probably help through Twitter. So if I posted something, she could retweet it and that's powerful. Right. But I just, I went back and forth in my head and I said to myself, I have a celebrity wanting to help me, but I can't seem to figure out the best way to <laughs> use this platform. And then we had another conversation in the new year, and that's when we came up with the idea of doing a film. She said, we could do a little film. It wasn't, mm -hmm. we, we weren't thinking of TIFF, that's for sure. Yeah. She said, we can post something on Twitter, little clips. And I said, that sounds great. The other women on the phone who were indigenous women who were dealing with the Alton gas issue, they, everybody was screaming and squealing and everybody was excited. And then uh, she came up in April of this year. She filmed for about six days. And then when I went, um, to look at the footage with her um, and the director, Ian Daniel, um, we thought we had something powerful here mm -hmm. and that it warranted more than simply posting it on Twitter. That's when we started talking about feature length film. We mm -hmm. started talking about perhaps an hour and a half rather than 30 minutes or 20 minutes. Right, right. And that's when we started talking about film festivals. Like we were just kind of joking around and we said Berlin, we said um, <laughs> Sundance. We started talking about TIFF and we said, yeah. And I said, I think we need to do this project justice. And I think if we just mm -hmm. throw it onto Twitter, it's really not a great way to get the issues out there. I think TIFF is best. Right. I think TIFF has an international audience. And I think that's the way we should go. Uh, they were saying, you know, I'm not going to be disappointed if we don't get to TIFF. You know, we did this so quickly. And I said, no, <laughs> I want TIFF. Yeah. So, yeah. and this we is got off TIFF. of, so there's something in your water, in the water mm -hmm. is your first book. My first Correct. book. Wow. Yeah. So, how did it feel to have Ellen Page, well, 
for the book itself to fall in your lap and then Ellen Page to you know, find it and come to you to build something from that. It's really shocking. Um, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not religious. And I, I tell this to my, I have a personal trainer that I see every day and I told her this. So I'm not religious, keep in mind, but I did say in October of last year before Ellen, mm-hmm. I said out loud to myself and maybe it was to a higher power that it would be great if something huge happened around my book. I said those <laughs> words out loud. I said those words out loud, mm-hmm. not thinking much of it. And this happened. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I keep reminding my trainer. I said, remember when I said that and I told mm-hmm. you about it? She said, I don't believe in any of that stuff. <laughs> and I said, well, this is huge. And I actually voiced it. Yeah. Um, you know, when they say speak things into existence, yeah. I don't know. I can't explain it, but this is huger than what I had mm-hmm. imagined. So it was mm-hmm. something that I wanted. I wanted to, I was speaking to somebody else and they had a book out and they said, nobody was coming to, you know, I didn't have anybody coming to any of my book launches. And then something's kind of dramatic happened around uh, Pixel Landing First Nation. And then she got a lot of attention. So sometimes you need maybe a spark to give you yeah. a little bit more attention, something yeah. happening perhaps in the environment that draws attention to your book. Um, mine just came because I voiced it. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So talk, t- talk to us about the, the journey of the actual documentary. Um, who was involved in that? Who did you interview? Where did mm-hmm. you guys go to get the different perspectives to, mm-hmm. to produce this documentary? Well, my role as a co-producer was to get the people in line, right? Because I knew I had worked with these individuals through my project, so I knew them. I had relationships with them. And they are typically people I would call on to present at one of my events. So I, in the back of my mind, I knew they would say yes. Ellen wasn't familiar with them. Um, so mm-hmm. that was my main role, to reach Organize. out to them, ask them whether mm-hmm. or not they wanted to be part of it, and then um, send that information to Ellen and her team. They came up, uh, I would say, early April, around April 10th. And they filmed for about six days. They kind of just went to one community after the other. So the first interview was with me in Halifax. Then I believe the next day they went to another community. The filming was done, I would say, in about six, seven days. Wow. Um, it was, it, it, it's amazing how well it went. It went smoothly. And that's mm-hmm. because we had the people on board early on, because mm-hmm. the people on board trusted the process, yeah. because they had a relationship with me already. Right. And they were ready to go. And I always say that those are people that I feel are camera ready. Mm-hmm. You know, they just know how they just know how to speak in a way that brings you in. Uh, they're all great storytellers, and they've done it before. They're experienced. They're, mm-hmm. They were shy, so they were kind of uh, they were excited about being part of the process and seeing mm-hmm. how it could actually uh, impact uh, the issue in a positive way. What type of impact do you hope this documentary has? Uh, for me, who I'm a, I'm a professor who's always interested in informing and educating and uh, knowledge mobilization is kind of what we talk about often as professors. How do you get your work out in different and creative ways apart from just publishing? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't read journal articles um, and doing the standard things that a lot of professors do. I'm always looking for creative ways to inform. So for me as a professor, my role, I don't consider myself an activist. So, you know, if, if it goes beyond just informing um, and raising awareness, that's great. But as a professor, I feel my role is to inform, educate. Mm. And if it touches people, which often film does, 
then in a way that can incite them to action. So I guess I would say that I want the film to make people feel and to think. I want it to raise awareness to the point where people say, you know what, I want to be involved in this. I want to do something. Mm -hmm. And after the film festival, I saw that happening with people approaching me on the street. Uh, for example, people saying, that well in Shelburne, I can't believe, you know, that they paid so much money for that celebration, but they can't seem to get a well in the black community yeah, in Shelburne. Yeah. I had three people approach me on the street right after TIFF saying to me, I would like to pay for the well. Wow. I got a man from Mississauga in Ontario about a month ago saying, everybody has a right to clean water, regardless of race or ethnicity. I'm interested with a few folks of, a few friends of mine, we would like to pay for that well. Wow. So that's a, a really great example of how a film uh, could touch people mm -hmm. and people actually want to do something about it. That's amazing. I, there was one scene in the film that just gave me chills, and it was when they were in Shelburne mm -hmm. and they were driving down a street mm -hmm. and you know pointing to the houses yes. and the people that have passed away yes. from contamination, cancer, mm -hmm. and that's when mm -hmm. I was just like, "This is this is real." Yes. Um, did you have moments? I mean, this is your career, right? So, like, how do you how do you hold that? Like, how do you? How do you, what do you do with that? How do, how do you deal with that? Like knowing that there's so much out there that people are suffering from and. It's funny, I felt the same as you and I'm part of this project. And mm -hmm. Louise met with me in 2015 and told me, Ingrid, everybody in my community seems to have cancer. I was shocked by it then. I thought it was stunning at that time. But, 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 but when I was watching the film, I was stunned. Mm -hmm. And I know Louise and I know what she's told me four years ago, but I was stunned because I don't think I realized it was that many people. Her pointing mm -hmm. it out and driving through the neighborhood was stunning to me. So, um, yeah, the film impacted me in a way that I didn't think it would because I thought I was so close to it. Mm -hmm. um, I Yes, the issues are troubling, but my, my attitude has always been one foot after the other. I just like to keep going. I don't get stuck in anger. Mm -hmm and disappointments for very long. I feel my role is to just keep going and finding kind of new and creative ways in order to address the issue. Uh, so that's what I do. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so now what's next? So the movie just launched at TIFF. It launched at the Atlantic Film Festival. Now what's, what's next? Um, we are in the process of selling it. Okay. So you're in the pro you can't say you can't say anything else. <laughs> it's being it's sold, I think, in the process. Okay. But uh, I was told not to say anything at this point. But ah. but it's very exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very exciting and an opportunity for people beyond you know North America. Um, and they're looking at some Canadian film festivals. So we're still doing that film festival route. Gotcha. But once again, we've got to sell it if we want to distribute it to libraries. Yeah, yeah. And I've had a lot of professors ask me when they can screen it. So we've got to get it out to the libraries as well. But I would say that this week, or was it Monday? Yes, I got some fantastic news about um, a sale of this film. And I just uh, I think it's great because it's going to impact a lot Amazing. of people. I remember uh, leaving the theater and going to Twitter and I said something along the lines of, uh, like this movie is going to put a spotlight on Nova Scotia worldwide or something like that. <laughs> and I think, I think it will. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it will. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, what policies should be in place to prevent environmental racism? Is that something that you, you, you study or you look at as well? Yeah, um, in 2015, we developed the first environmental racism bill in Nova Scotia. Um, and you say we. It's a partnership between myself and an MLA by the name of Lenore Zan, NDP, okay. but she's now a liberal. Okay. And we worked together in early 2015. We met, she said, you know, I want to help you with this issue. I think a great way to kind of support this issue is to develop a private member's bill. And I wasn't even thinking that way. And we did. We developed the first environmental racism bill in Canada. It was wow. called at that time Bill 111 an act to address environmental racism. It was introduced in the legislature in April 29th, on April 29th, 2015. It was debated um, November of that year, 2015. It, it didn't pass though. Mm. Uh, it is an NDP bill, so that's part of the issue. Right. But it has been reintroduced every sin single year since then. It's now called Bill 32. So for me, a really important piece of this is environmental racism legislation or an environmental bill of rights, which isn't exactly environmental racism, but if we can center the experiences of Mi'kmaq and African Nova Scotian communities into an environmental bill of rights, then I'd be really, really happy. I mm. think it's not the complete answer, but I think having an environmental bill um, that centers the experiences of the people most impacted is, is really, really important. A provincial bill and a federal bill. Hmm. How can communities come together to fight environmental racism? You know, they are doing it. Um, they have been doing it. The young people have been doing it. Look at the climate marches that have happened across Canada and the world. You know, yeah. it's like at times I'm like, I don't know what else. Like, I, I think mass mobilization and action and getting people together who are passionate is really important for this. Yeah. I also think that sometimes we do these big marches and then there's nothing. Mm -hmm. And you got to keep doing it, I guess. Mm -hmm. I, I do see the frustration in people. It's like we had great, we've had great marches and protests, but sometimes nothing comes from that. I, I think it has to be steady mm -hmm. and consistent and persistent over time. Yeah. Um, but it's people go back to their jobs and they go back to other activities yeah. and it's hard to keep that up. So I would say beyond an environmental bill of rights or an environmental racism bill, we need to have people coming together like we have and like we've always had, but, but we need to be persistent. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't let up. Um, and that is oftentimes the only way government is going to hear us. We also, of course, it's voting. Yeah. You know, it's about who we select um, and the kinds of questions we ask our politicians during election time. That's also key as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. If you could guarantee one person to pick up your book, to read it, to view the documentary and then to act on it. One person who could do that, who would it be? One person. And be honest. <laughs> hmm, it's a really great question. Well, I, I guess I could say Justin Trudeau, but I don't think it's going to have that much of an impact. I think, I think my goal is for the regular reader, the person who doesn't know anything about this issue, or the person who does, to look at these things and get inspired and want to act in a different way, or just want to act. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I explained earlier when I was approached on the street by people who said, I want to pay for that well in Shelburne, yeah. that's actually 
more important to me is people, regular mm -hmm. folks who mm -hmm. want to do something, than a politician picking up my book, uh, I guess, because I don't know if that's going to have any impact. I should say I sent my book to Justin Trudeau. Okay. I did. <laughs> and Jack Meet Singh, I sent it uh, when it was published. So for me, it's really about the regular person. I think, I think we, we often miss that, that the regular people, regular mm -hmm. folks have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. um, so I want them to pick up the book to get educated. I want them to get angry. I want them to feel. I want them to look at the documentary and feel in a different way, of course, because I think a documentary is much more accessible um, and can be more powerful than a book in many ways. And I want them to think about the issues in a very different way, because the way I wrote the book is to get people to think about environmental racism in a different way mm -hmm. that we're talking about in this province. There's a focus on environmental justice, and nobody's talking about the racism part of it. Mm -hmm. Before you get to the justice, you've got to talk about the condition of environmental racism. Nobody wants to do that. So I wrote the book because I wanted to change the narrative and change how people think about the issue. So for me, that's satisfying to me, that the regular mm -hmm. person would pick that up and say, you know what, I'm angry, or I feel, or I feel empathy, and mm -hmm. I want to now do something. Awesome. Well, I hope that if Justin Trudeau or our premier were to look at the movie or the book, I hope that it would inspire them to act as well. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. No problem. On December 20th, the Premier of Nova Scotia, Stephen McNeil, announced the closure of Northern Pulp, one of the locations where there's something in the water was filmed. And this is one of the hardest decisions that we as a government have had to make. The commitment I made to clean up Boat Harbour was a serious one and not something our government did lightly. Many governments before us said they would clean it up, but did not. We will not repeat that pattern. The Boat Harbor Act will be enforced as of January 31st, 2020. Northern Pulp will be ordered to stop pumping effluent into Boat Harbor. And let me be clear, there will be no extension. Here's, uh, there are issues that I've seen of institutional racism uh, that we have dealt with, whether it has been for the Home for Colored Children or Boat Harbor. Uh, let's be frank. Uh, in the 60s, it was acceptable to put our dumps next to African Nova Scotia communities. Some, somehow our ancestors thought that was okay. Uh, it's not today, and nor is it okay to allow Boat Harbor uh, to continue. And I believe it was put there because it was next to an Aboriginal community.